Those of you who know me probably have heard everything I'm going to say many times before. And so I apologize for that. Those of you who don't know me, this will be new and different. I've preached this message quite a few times, and I feel the need, and I feel the need every time I study this passage to try to reapply it to my life. This passage has meant so much to me as a Christian and has meant so much to me as someone who is maturing, pressing on towards the faith. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows the parable of the Good Samaritan. You hear it in Sunday school. It's probably one of the first parables you ever get to. Everybody knows the parable. Everybody knows the lesson. But I think upon closer examination that there are some things that we can draw out that we need to be careful to apply to our lives. Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. And I'm reading from the King James, so you'll have to forgive me. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, he was at the place, came, he looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. I've seen every other preacher do this, so I guess I better do it too. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Again, it's a very, very familiar parable. It's so familiar sometimes that I think that we overlook certain key truths that it happened before the parable that we need to understand before we can understand what the parable itself is saying, which is why I read from verse 25 and following. Now, there's a certain lawyer who's standing out in the crowd, and he wants to know how it is that he gets eternal life. How is it that I get this gift called eternal life? Well, there's some parallel passages, of course, you know about the... uh, the great commandment and the second great commandment. One is found in Matthew 22. The other one is found in Mark chapter 12. And those passages, Jesus is the one who gives the great commandments. So maybe this young lawyer was there when Jesus gave those commandments before, so we knew the answer this time when Jesus asked him what's written in the law. What do you think the greatest commandment is? Or perhaps I read recently in... uh, Has any of you seen that that book put out by the Jesus Seminar? 
I picked it up the other day in B. Dalton Bookstore, the, uh, the Five Gospels with Thomas. Well, they, they have a little theory there in Luke chapter 10 that uh, there was a rabbi who was teaching the same thing that Jesus was teaching during the time. And maybe Jesus picked it up off from this rabbi so that he could go ahead and, and teach it. So there's interesting things like that floating around as well in, in critical studies. But the point of the thing is, is that the, the man quoted parts of the law. He was a lawyer. He knew the law. He knew the Pentateuch backwards, forwards, upside down, inside out. He could recite it sideways. You know, he knew it. He knew the law. And because he knew the law, he said that the first commandment is found in Deuteronomy 6.5, right after the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And then he quoted another passage from Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18. It's only part of the verse, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The understanding that I think I want you to come to is that Deuteronomy 6.5 comes first. And then Leviticus 19.18. It says in 1 John, the fourth chapter in the 19th verse, we love, it says in the King James, we love him because he first loved us. But it says in the NASB, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We agape because he first agaped us. The only reason that we have the capacity to love is because God has loved us. We cannot love at all unless God is the one who is doing the loving through us. There is no way that we can reach out and love our neighbor unless God is the one who is reaching out through us doing that loving. And that is an important truth because so many times I think we here at the Master's College get caught up in the fact that maybe we can make a difference. Maybe I can make a difference. Maybe Tom Knight can do something in somebody else's life that can change them and that is absolutely wrong thinking. Tom Knight can't do a thing, but Jesus Christ can. Jesus Christ can. Because of the fact that God first loved me, I have the capacity to love. Because of the fact that God has grabbed a hold of my heart and pulled me out of the dark, miry clay, and pulled me out of a pit and set my feet upon a rock. Because He has done that. Because He has established my goings. Because He is the one who is the Lord of my life. He can touch others through me. Through me. Through me. Now, the amazing thing about this is that he can use a sinner in that way. Do you understand the contradiction there? Do you understand that he's using imperfect vessels to do this great work? But he is doing it. And that is what is supposed to be happening in Christianity. We are supposed to be seeking God with everything that is within us. And as we seek God with everything that is within us, and as we yield to Him, and as we finally get rid of ourselves, He does a marvelous work through us and touches somebody else. That's amazing. But that's the way God has made this Christianity. Not a religion. Not a list of rules to follow. 
Not a book to read and memorize so that we can put it down later or we can quote a bunch of verses. Not something to write down on the next survey that you get. But a a life. A life. A life. And not only a life, but a life that is able to reach and touch somebody else. The first fundamental truth is that we shall love the Lord our God with everything that we have within us. I want you to notice in that 27th verse how there's all, 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 all. And the question is, when you have got done loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, what do you have left? Nothing. There is nothing left. You've given it all to God. You don't have anything to love your neighbor with anyways. You understand what I'm saying? Because you've fulfilled the first commandment, because you've done everything that you've got with the first commandment, you can't even touch the second one. Better yet, you can't touch the first one because you can't love him with everything that you've got. Because, 1 John 4:19, he loved us first. He put the love within us and he's the one who is making us love him. He is drawing us to Him. The more that I read the Bible and the more that I, I, I interact with it, the more that I realize that all this thing, this, this life called Christianity, as it comes together and as it, 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 <laughs> as it envelops me, you'll have to forgive me, but I can't deal with this stage anymore. And you have to forgive me as I walk. It helps me think better. God has to be the primary focus of our lives. And as He is the primary focus of our lives, that's when other lives are going to change. You talk about how you want to save people. You talk about how you want to be evangelical. You talk about how you want to reach out to others. You talk about how you want to get people into the church. You talk about how you want this world to be a better place. You talk about how things just aren't going right the way things are going now. You talk about how frustrated you are with all the stuff and the evil that's around you. I tell you, the answer is love God with everything that you've got. It's as simple as that. It's not tough. It's not hard. It doesn't take a PhD. It doesn't take a lot of understanding. It doesn't take a Scantron. It takes a simple yielded heart. And the amazing thing is that he uses weak vessels like us. I remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's talking about how he's... He's got this infirmity and he wants the Lord to take it away. He asks the Lord three times. The Lord doesn't take it away. But in verse 9 of chapter 12, Christ says to Paul, My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul, after listening to the fact that Christ's strength is made perfect in weakness, says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Where's Paul's focus? If, if you read Paul, all you read is Christ, 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 God, Christ, 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 God, Christ, Christ, Christ. 
And you'll forgive me, I'm going to take a little divergence, but I'm just thinking about that song, I Am Not Ashamed of the Gospel. And a lot of people think of Romans 1.16. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. The which cause being the Gospel. For the which cause I also suffer these things. I also suffer these things. On account of the Gospel, I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. And then... And in the Greek, that, that, the use of the double negative there it just makes it a positive. It makes it a positive. It makes it the ultimate positive. It's a superlative. It says, I am very proud of the gospel. I am proud of the gospel because my God has given this gospel to me to reach others through me. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, young Timothy, he's saying, young Timothy, yeah, I know you're upset with what's going on in Ephesus right now. I know you're upset with what's going on in Ephesus right now, but God can use you. And I'm saying, Master's College, God can use you. Just don't be ashamed of the Gospel. Just get focused on God. Just put all the other things aside. This is a tough time of year. Believe me, I'm wrapped up in it too. Sixteen papers behind, you know. The typical stuff. I'm wrapped up in it too. I know it's a tough time of year. I know it's that time of year when you want to slack off. I know it's that time of year when you want to put you know, your quiet time aside for a second and and get a couple extra hours of sleep or whatever. I'm telling you, that's not the way to go. We need to read that book. That book is fantastic. That book is our love letter from Christ. And Christ can use us. If We are not on a hiatus while we're here at the Master's College. And forgive me as I get on my soapbox. Ministry should be happening now. We're not preparing for ministry. You understand? We're not preparing for ministry. Oh, well, I'm going to be a pastor in a couple of years. I'm going to get through master's first, then I'll go to seminary, and then I'll go ahead and I'll preach. Then I'll go ahead and I'll be ready to go ahead and minister to people. That's not the way it works, folks. That's not the way it works. God can use us now because of the very fact that we don't know anything. <laughs> because it's when we're weak that God is strong. I know so many people who have got their theology all figured out and can't affect the kingdom at all because they're too busy wrapped up in their theology. They're too busy reading their books. They're too busy in their ivory tower. They don't care what's going on in the real world. They don't care about being practical. They don't care about things like that. What they care... What we should be caring about is God. And when we care about God, that's when things happen. Don't get me wrong. I'm here studying just like you. And I'm not knocking studying. I'm saying that priorities need to be set. And I'm saying God comes first and everything else comes second. Everything. You see, many times I think we get those things mixed up. You know, I'm going ahead and studying and I'm affecting the kingdom now because I'm studying. I'm serving God by studying. And the problem with that line of thinking is is that you haven't put yourself in a position to serve people. You haven't put yourself in a position to be relational. You see, that's what this passage is talking all about, being relational. It says, first of all, get your relationship straight with God. And when you worship God with everything that you've got within you, and when you're following God with everything that you've got within you, then your relationship with people will come about. 
That's how it happened in my life. See, I used to sit in a corner. I used to think that people (laughs) were actually in the way of my serving God. Talk about twisted thinking. I used to think that there was one set of people that were over here and one set of people over here and I could go ahead and I could mingle with these people and I could sort of forget about these people. Well, that's the next point. You know about Samaria. You've taken your New Testament survey course. Have Samaria here. Got Judah down here. You got Galilee up here, right? Sort of like a stoplight. There's Samaria. People want to go from Judah to to Galilee, what do they do? Wow. Sort of like the 10 freeway over Compton. (laughs) Instead of going through it, they go over it. The Jews hated the Samaritans. So what is Christ saying in this parable? He's saying, look, folks, Jews, and I'm addressing you as Jews. Look, Jews, you are so holy. You are so righteous. You have got it all together. You have figured it out. You have got the answers, Jews. There was a certain priest. He's a pastor. He saw one of his own, another Jew who had got beaten up and got thrown by the wayside. There he is. But the pastor, being too caught up in his daily affairs, had to get to the church right away because his secretary had an appointment for him at 8.30. So he went on by. Well, the Levite came by. We'll call the Levite the student. The student, realizing that finals were coming up, had to study. But he was kind of interested in what was going on, so he went over and he looked at the guy, checked him out, said, yeah, he's pretty beat up, and walked on by. And now the person that you hate the most, the person that you hate the most, you're the guy who's on the ground, the person that you hate the most, is the guy that comes by and picks you up out of the dirt. The person that hates you the most. See, Christ wasn't directly saying, you be like the Samaritan. Christ was saying, look, this is what you're like right now. You're the guys that won't even take care of your own. You're the guys who are lying in the dirt. And eventually, probably the only one who is going to help you is going to be your enemy. That's a rough way to get the point across. See, I think we often zero in on the fact that we have... We know what the Good Samaritan's all about, so we sort of skip that part, you know, sort of gloss it over. We just say, yeah, we know what the Good Samaritan is. Go ahead and help your neighbor and and be good and and just help your neighbor and pour the oil and wine in and go ahead and get the guy a room and, and pay for it. 
But we forget the part that Christ is really saying, look, I'm revealing what your heart is really like. And your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.10 answers <laughs> what 17.9 says. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. There are many times I don't think I even know how wicked I am, but God does. And in that very wickedness, he says, he says, I love you so much, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to use you. I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to use you. What's written in the law? What's written in the law? It's written in the law that we should seek God with everything that we've got, that we should give God everything that we've got. And in the very fact that we are giving God everything that we've got, He is able to use us to reach others. And in using us to reach others, the kingdom is affected. And that is what the Good Samaritan is all about. Turn to Matthew. No, better yet, let's look at Leviticus chapters 18, 19, and 20. Just want to give you an interesting observation there. <coughs> the second commandment is, is vitally entwined with the first. Hopefully I've proved that so far. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul states, he talks about the second commandment. As a matter of fact, he quotes the second commandment. But the very fact that he's quoting the second commandment implies the first. You can't have the second without 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 the first. That's what I want you to take home with you. That's what's going to be on the test, okay? And in Leviticus, actually, Leviticus chapter 18, I want you to notice something really interesting there. First of all, in chapter 19, verse 18, that's where the second commandment is uh, is quoted. But there's an interesting re refrain in chapters 18, 19, and 20. And the first refrain is, I am the Lord your God. Listen to this. It shows up in chapter 18, verses 2, 4, 30. Chapter 19, 3, 4, 10, 25, 31, 34, 36, 20, 7, and 24. I think he wanted us to know that he is the Lord our God. Also, there's another refrain, I am the Lord. Chapter 18, verses 5, 6, 21. Chapter 19, verses 12, 14, 16, 18, 28, 30, 32, 37. And chapter 20, verse 8. I think he wanted us to know that he was the Lord. You understand? Look at chapter 19, verse 18. B. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And keep that in your mind. Chapter 19, verse 18. Be, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. <laughs> and what's the refrain? I am the Lord. The reason that you're going to love your neighbor as yourself is because I am the Lord. The reason that you're going to do all these commandments that are contained in chapters 18, 19, and 20 of the book of Leviticus, because he was addressing the congregation of Israel, 
The reason that you are going to do these commandments is because I am God. Not because you are going to conform to a moral code. Not because you are going to conform to any outward show of respect. Not because you are going to conform to something that looks right. But because I am the Lord. You will be perfect as I am perfect. Chapter 18, verse 2. No, I'm sorry, it's holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Which brings us to Matthew 5. And I'm sorry I'm speeding through this, but we sort of had some fun on the song. In Matthew 5, we have the Sermon on the Mount. And the understanding of neighbor as being everybody, as portrayed in in chapter... 10 of Luke bears significantly on what Christ has to say in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy, bless them that curse you, do good unto them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what more do you have than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. You have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. Christ, of course, attacking current rabbinical teaching. You have heard that the rabbis said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now, we just looked at Leviticus 19.18, and I don't see anywhere in there that it says to go ahead and hate your enemy. Maybe it's someplace else in the Old Testament that I haven't run across yet. Maybe it's someplace in the New Testament that I have yet to read. But according to my current understanding, there is no place in the Word of God where it tells us to hate our enemy. Quite to the contrary, Christ tells us to love our enemy. You see, and it ties in with the Good Samaritan because the Good Samaritan was the enemy of the Jews. The ultimate ethnic enemy. They had despoiled the blood. They had intermarried. They had become ritually unclean. And the hardest thing in the world for us as human beings to do is to love our enemies. The hardest thing in the world for us to do as human beings is to turn around to somebody who we think has despitefully used us and do a good turn unto them. But do you know why we're supposed to love our enemies? It's in verse 48. Does that mean that we have to try to be perfect? No. 
No, 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 that's not it at all. The point is this. The character of God is to love us. And because it's the character of God to love us who are so unworthy, it should be our character to reflect His character and love others, even though they are unworthy. Because of the nature of God, we should be reflective of that nature. Because God loves, we love. Because God is holy, we are holy. Because in Luke chapter 6, God is merciful, we are merciful. It's not because of us. It's not because we are striving to do anything. It's because God is pouring Himself into us and out of us. It's because we're seeking God with everything that we've got within us. And the only thing that that naturally leads to is to displaying God through our lives. Sorry if that's really simple, but that's all I read. And yet you have a Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is that? I would say, I have an answer. I would say you don't do a push-up till you push. I'd say you sort of be like Garfield. I got the push part, I'll get the up tomorrow. You understand that somehow, some way, in our striving for God, for all He's worth, somehow, some way, in our striving for God and striving for the character of God and striving to understand God and striving to love God and striving to give ourselves to God and everything that He has, some way He honors that and He pours His love through us and it affects others. You want change? Seek God. You want change? Get into the Word. You want change? Start applying the Word. You want change? Take the stuff that you're learning in these classes and actually use it. You want change? You want the world to change? You want to see a better place? You want to see something that's actually affected? Get out of the way and let God do it. The reason why God can't work most of the time is because we're so busy trying to get something done. I don't know if you know what I mean, but I have often gotten in the Lord's way thinking that I was doing something right. Thinking that I was going to go ahead and I was going to do this thing and I was going to do it right. I'm telling you that that's a lie. Self has got to die. Galatians 2.20 Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me gave himself for me. He works through me. My part in this is to get out of the way. My part in this is to die. My part in this is to make sure that my selfish desires do not get in the way. And I'm not so sure that it can't be put any more simply than that. Most of the time we won't seek God because, or we don't seek God, and I include myself in this, we don't seek God because we're too busy getting what we want. 
We're too busy taking care of our needs. We're too busy taking care of our desires. We're too busy making sure that we're preparing for the future. We're too busy making sure that we're going to have the two-bedroom home. We're too busy making sure that we have the nice cars so we can get to where we need to minister at. We're too busy making sure that we have the comforts of life. Matthew 6.33 says to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek God. The other stuff is a lie. It's put out there as a lure. And it catches a lot of us. So that's about all I have to say. Seek God with everything that you've got. And everything else will take care of itself. Can we stand and pray? Lord, we do indeed thank you for who you are and we thank you for the fact that You have reached out to us so incomprehensible that you have followed after us, that you have sought us. I pray that you would help us to become more like you, that you would manifest your glory through our lives, that you would touch others through us. Just help us through this week, Lord. I know it's going to be a tough week. Finals are coming up. Many of us are stressed, Lord God. I pray that you would just be with us, comfort us at this time, put your arms around us, speak to us, and give us the strength to seek you with everything that we have. We just want to thank you right now for what you've already done and what you're already going to do in the future. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.